with us. I invite you to grab a Bible if you have one. Turn in it to the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 1. That's where we're jumping in. Again, we've been in this about year-long or so series in the book of Acts, just walking through it little by little. We spent about six weeks in chapter 7, so maybe some of you are relieved to turn the page over to chapter 8 as we continue walking through, uh, again, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Um, hey, a few years ago, there was an author and theologian named Sky Jathani who wrote an article that then became a book titled, How Churches Became Cruise Ships. Again, How Churches Became Cruise Ships. And he unpacks in that article how modern views have really shifted in terms of what we think about the church. What the church is, what the church is for, again, why we're here. And he talks about how, until recently, the church was seen as a pretty simple thing. It was a place where people could connect with God and join him in his work in the world. And he compared uh, the church to ocean liners, not cruise ships quite yet, but they used to be viewed as ocean liners in a sense. Think about early 1900s and a bustling New York harbor, people getting on boats and ships going across the Atlantic to, to from Europe and so on. Ships, ocean liners, had a simple purpose. Take people from point A to point B. Okay? Pretty simple. That's what they were about, getting passengers from point A to point B. But the author here points out how things have changed, both with ships and with the church in recent generations. And how in the past few decades, people really stopped going to church as often uh, or stopped seeing uh, church as necessary. And cultural views and habits have shifted in the world. And so churches, out of fear, said, hey, if we want to keep people uh, here, keep attracting people and drawing people, we have to change. And so rather than church remaining simple, about, hey, getting people from point A to point B, connecting people with God and then joining Him in His work in the world... They said, no, we need to do something different to get people in the doors. And so instead of an ocean liner, churches became like cruise ships. Think about a cruise, the, the difference between a cruise ship and an ocean liner. An ocean liner is, hey, getting you to point A to point B, very simple. A cruise ship is not really about a particular destination. They, they go in a circle, right? They start at the same port. They come back to the same port. And they keep you entertained all the while that you... Are there. And so church similarly became a destination in itself. Rather than being a, getting point A to point B, the, the ship itself, the church itself now is the destination. It's a place where you come and have your needs met and you consume religious goods and services and hopefully you're you know, entertained and have fun along the way. And the mentality and the shift about what churches are about change, and the ships and churches had to contain more options on board for fun and entertainment, had to keep people busy consuming their products while they're on board. And so for churches, it became less about connecting us with God and joining His work in the world, and became church as an end in itself, less about mission and where God is taking us, and more about our own comfort. 
So church is like a cruise ship for me. It's about me consuming religious goods and services, not necessarily going anywhere, just having my needs met and the right programs and the right production quality to satisfy my standards. And this isn't just, here, this isn't just like a big church, small church sort of thing. Small churches can have the same sort of mentality. And we've lost sight along the way then of the whole purpose, the mission of the church, what God wants to do in us and in the world. And our passage this morning is really going to challenge us as modern readers to, to think about what God really is doing in the world. And it's going to call us to refocus on what it means to really be His church and live on mission and be about His work in the world. We'll see it as we go, but notice where we are in chapter 8, verse 1, picking up right after Stephen's death. Look at it again. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, and put them in prison. So a bit of context to refresh our memories, in case maybe you haven't been here uh, in a little while or, or ever. In chapter 7, we were looking at uh, Stephen, who was this uh, minister in Jerusalem. He was doing ministry, sharing the gospel, but those in power were threatened by him and the message of Jesus, and so they arrested Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin, put him on trial for his life, and ultimately they kill him. He becomes the first martyr of the church. He's stoned to death outside the city. Uh, and verse 2 says, Then they take first they bury him, and his friends mourn for him. And we see that after this, almost like a first domino effect here, there's this persecution that breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. That's what verse 1 says, a great persecution broke out against the church that day. And so if you're a note taker, kind of the first heading of our study this morning is a great persecution. Followers of Jesus in Jerusalem are threatened, are being attacked, uh, we've seen it kind of ramp up throughout the book, right? First, they're, they're warned, hey, don't talk about Jesus. Then they're warned and like beaten and sent away, like seriously, don't talk about Jesus. And then they're arrested, and now Stephen is killed. He's lost his life. And, and from there, then it escalates into this, this full-on persecution against anyone following Jesus. And it was so intense that it says all of them scattered except for the few apostles, so those perhaps who were from other regions or had connections to other regions left the city of Jerusalem and are scattered elsewhere. It was so bad, and it was truly systematic. In verse 3, we see that Saul, who we're going to get well acquainted with over the next few weeks, he watched and he oversaw Stephen's death and approved of it. And now he's going house to house, verse 3 says. Uh, looking for Christians, systematically moving women through the neighborhood, seeing if anyone there is devoted to Jesus, and then he's taking them, both men and women, and putting them in prison, hoping that they will likely have the same fate that Stephen had. Now, we see his zeal on display here, because the text tells us men and women he was taking away to prison. Uh, usually in the ancient world, 
men would go off to prison. Uh, the legal system was much harsher on men, and women weren't viewed as much as a threat, so often they'd be more lenient. But here we see Saul doesn't care. He says, man, woman, child, whoever you are, if you're devoted to Jesus, you got to go. And as this persecution is breaking out, we're going to talk about it more in just a moment. I want you to see just one little detail it gives us pointing back to Stephen's death. Verse 1 talks about the persecution, and we're going to get into that. And verse 2 tells us, notice this key detail, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Almost like a little, little pause, a little interlude before we jump into the rest of the persecution. I just remember Stephen, he was buried and he was mourned. I love that the text tells us this. They honor him in burial, which is totally appropriate to the customs of the time. Not necessarily surprising. They mourn deeply for him. And I want you to see that the scriptures speak to just the whole range of the human experience. They've lost their friend and brother. They mourn, they grieve deeply for him. I think sometimes we think in the modern day that the Christian life is supposed to be all up and to the right and all happy clappy all the time and all smiles and giggles and rainbows and we come into church and we're just, everything is good and we have to have our emotional state put together and there's not a lot of room for grief and loss and sitting in pain we got to move quickly past the losses, smooth over the bumps and bruises. And because we're uncomfortable sitting with people in their pain, often we'll like try and say something stupid to make them feel better, and it doesn't always work well. Because we want to make it neat and tidy. Whether it's a death, a loss, illness, pain, wounds. So I just want you to notice that the Scriptures show us uh, that it's healthy, biblical, necessary to grieve. When there are losses, we are to mourn deeply, deeply, it says. And so in just a few verses, do you see in just a few verses, we have the Stephen's death and persecution and mourning and grief, and then we're going to see also like the church scattered and also people coming to know Jesus. And verse 8 even says there's going to be great joy in Samaria because people are hearing about Jesus. So there's like the growth of the church and expansion and mission and wins, and great losses and grief and mourning, and it's kind of all just held there together. And that's basically what life is like. And so the scriptures paint this honest picture for us, sorrow and joy, persecution and growth, celebrating wins, grieving losses. I just want us to have, give yourself permission, would you, to feel all of those things? Especially if you're here this morning and you're hurting and I know some of you are here this morning and you're hurting. And so the answer isn't, hey, come and leave, leave your sorrows at the door and pretend they're not real and just come in and put a happy face on. No, your, our sorrows are often what drive us to the feet of the Lord. So that's why I'm here. Because my heart is heavy. It's healthy and necessary to mourn. So moving forward, we see Saul who would become known most famously and to most of us as Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, this is the same guy. 
He's going to have a radical encounter with Jesus. It's going to change everything for him soon. But for now, he's known as Saul. And he was a zealous and devout Jew. He was a Pharisee. He studied under a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Uh, He was born in Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. He even called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so if there was a devout Jew in the land, it was Saul. He's so devout and passionate and zealous that, again, he's going around trying to kill Christians because they're, they're blasphemers in his mind. They're lawbreakers in his mind. He's saying, we have to get rid of them. They're claiming this Jesus is to be worshipped as God himself. They're claiming this Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. He wasn't buying it. And so we see, we'll see as the story unfolds, his story and his transformation in chapter 9. It's, it's really one of my favorite conversion stories in the whole Bible. Because here's a man who goes from hunting down Christians door to door, dragging men and women and putting them in prison because they're followers of Jesus, and he becomes a Christian himself and writes the majority of the New Testament. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing testimony of God's grace and mercy and patience that none of us are too far gone. You think you're bad? You think your sin's too big? You think you've done too many wrong things? Look at Paul. He's like, I went around killing Christians. And God was gracious to me. He says as much back in 1 Timothy, actually later in 1 Timothy, as he's writing letters and planting churches And preaching the gospel, this is Paul, the same guy, Saul, from Acts chapter 8, who's going around killing Christians. He says this later. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He said, God was merciful and gracious to me so that everybody would know that God saves sinners. And it wasn't like, yeah, my life was mostly good, and I was really devout and really sincerely believed the things that I was passionate about, and so God was like, hey, you're good, come on in. No, he's like, I was the worst of sinners. But God saved me by his grace and by his mercy And so if you're here this morning, you think your sin is too big, or your sin is too bad, or your life is too messy for God to enter into, for God to redeem, you think you're too far gone to receive the love of God, Saul would say, think again. It's fun to think about that there are some right now, maybe, maybe some in this room, I don't know, who are just opposed to God. You're like, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't even know why I'm here. Who drugged me to church? How did I end up here? I don't know. You're like, you want nothing to do with God. And maybe actively opposing him and Jesus and saying all kinds of things against the Lord, perhaps. I don't know. And yet, God is going to save them. And there's going to be more, like Saul, who are running the opposite direction, and yet the Lord Jesus shows himself to them Uh, in a way that is unmistakable and gives them new life and gives them new hearts and they become mighty servants in the kingdom of God. Maybe that's you. But for now, the church is facing persecution, right? 
The heat is turned up and they're scattered. And notice with me where the church is scattered. Look at verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered where? Throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, so they had to leave town. We're leaving Jerusalem and they go to Judea and Samaria. Now, does that sound familiar to any of us? Yes. Any readers of the book of Acts, if you've been with us, maybe you remember chapter 1. Remember kind of this uh, purpose statement, this theme of the book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've referenced it a number of times. Jesus tells his disciples what? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and where else? In Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this scattering of the church, this persecution even, is actually fulfilling the words of Jesus, that the church would be sent out, witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. Even this is accomplishing the plans and purposes of our sovereign God. Now, there's a few different ways scholars will like break down the book of Acts. You know, they'll study it and say, hey, here's kind of like the outline of the book and the big major chunks, like part one and then part two, and here's kind of how the thought progresses. Um, and there's some different ways people will, uh, the, the cookie will crumble, so to speak. Uh, but right here, it's pretty commonly seen as uh, the end of part one, more or less, and a transition now to part two. And part one of the book, chapters one through seven, we see what? We see the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> We see the church, the apostles preaching. We see them before the Sanhedrin. We see them on trial. We see Jews in Jerusalem coming to Jesus. Uh, and now we see kind of part two of the book where the ministry focus is not going to be in Jerusalem, but it's going to be in Judea and Samaria, stretching out into even the Gentile world. So the mission of God is breaking out and is unfolding here as we kind of move into part two of the book of Acts. And we wonder, hey, would the church have gotten around to the mission if this persecution hadn't broken out? You know, like were they making plans to, to go branch out, open up a chapter in Judea, in Samaria, and they like just weren't quite there yet? We, we don't know, but, but we do know that their hand is forced and thus it fulfills the mission and plan of God. And so here's my question for us. What if we similarly viewed hardship and trial and opposition not merely as interruptions to our life, but somehow in the mystery and sovereignty of God as part of the purpose to which he has called us? Again, what if we similarly viewed hardship and trial and opposition not as interruptions to God's plan for our life, but somehow in the mystery and of God, part of the plans and purposes that he has set out for us. Out of necessity, I am being sent here. I'm going somewhere and doing something that I don't want to do. I wish I didn't have to go here. Maybe this situation in my life is painful or uncomfortable, but even here I can somehow see and believe that God is at work in this. It makes me think of Tim Shaw. Many of you know Tim Shaw, a longtime member of FBC. If you're newer to FBC, you probably don't know Tim Shaw. He passed away a few years ago of cancer. 
Tim was a remarkable man. And I remember sitting with Tim as, as he was going through cancer treatment. And I remember him just with a smile on his face, always. Like, just the guy was too joyful. Didn't make sense. Um, and he was telling me about, as he's going through treatment, all the conversations he was having with, with nurses that were administering his treatment, with uh, fellow cancer patients sitting in the waiting room or sitting next to him as he got his chemo or radiation. He was telling me with joy about all the conversations along the way and how he was able to talk to people about Jesus. And even there, he was sharing the hope and joy of Jesus in the hospitals. And here was a man, think about this, here's a man who would not be in those rooms or with those people sitting next to those nurses if it weren't for the hardship in his life. He wouldn't have been there. He said, this is not somewhere I plan to be. This is not somewhere I really want to be. And yet, here I am. So Lord, use me even here. Lord, wherever I go, help me share the joy and hope of Jesus with those that I encounter. Taught me so much about loving the Lord, sharing Jesus wherever he went. So notice what happens with the church in verse 4. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So those who had been scattered, as they're, they're persecuted, fleeing because of their safety, it says they go and they preach Jesus wherever they went. Philip goes down to Samaria. We'll talk about that more going forward. Uh, they're scattered, but seeing there's purpose in it. They're talking about Jesus as they go. So if the first kind of headline was uh, a great persecution, kind of the second headline uh, of our study is a great opportunity for mission. A great persecution breaks out, but it's a great opportunity for mission. For, for the church to, to live out the sense that they are called to go. Right? What, what a mindset shift. They're not saying, hey, we're a cruise ship here for our own entertainment and comfort, but we are an ocean liner. We are to connect with God and then be about His work in the world. So they're saying, even in this, here's an opportunity for mission. Now, notice with me a few things about this text. Some of us might get a little uncomfortable. This would be fun. Notice who, who was doing this. Who were the ones that were living on mission, talking about Jesus? What does verse 4 say? <clears throat> those who had been scattered. Those who had been scattered. That's a big group. Don't know the exact number, but a lot. A lot of people. And we don't know their names. They were unnamed. I mean, we've heard about Stephen and what happened to him. And we're going to read about Philip. And we know some of the names of the apostles. So there are some big names in the Bible that we know. But verse 4 mentions the countless multitudes, the scripts, unnamed followers of Jesus who don't have uh, their name recorded in Scripture. And they're unrecognized. They don't have much airtime or a big platform. These aren't the big movers and shakers necessarily, the famous preachers of their day. 
but they're sharing Jesus. Realize, that's the story of the church. The, the growth of the church, the impact of the church, is not about the few names that we know. Really, it's about the 99% of believers, ordinary Christians, living their lives, loving their neighbors, sharing the gospel wherever they go. Which means, stay with me here, <clears throat> which means that preaching, preaching the word and proclaiming the Messiah is just as much about what you all do out there in your week as what I do up here. Just as much about the ordinary Christian sharing Jesus out there as it is the preacher up here with a pulpit. Steve Timmis and Tim Chester wrote a book called Everyday Church, and they quote it this way. They said, we need to recapture the sense that gospel ministry is not something done by pastors with the support of ordinary Christians, but something done by ordinary Christians with the support of pastors. <clears throat> you see that? Gospel ministry. It's not something that pastors do supported by ordinary Christians. It's something that ordinary Christians do supported by pastors or ministers. I said that might make some people uncomfortable because sometimes we think, you know, we'll give some money to the church or we'll come and sit back and receive a message, but we don't always see ourselves as missionaries. But really we see, hey, it's the ordinary people of the church that do the gospel ministry here. Now, notice, what did they do as they went? It says, those who have been scattered preached the word. They proclaimed the Messiah, verse 5 says. They told people about Jesus. And preaching, again, realize, it doesn't mean that they all, like, established a church and then got into a church building and went and gave sermons. That's not what it means when it says that they preached. They all started, you know, like a podcast or a YouTube channel and got up and gave, you know, sermons in the streets necessarily. The, the Greek word here for preached in verse 4, it's just the simple basic word for evangelism. <clears throat> they shared the good news. They told people about Jesus. So when we hear preach, we think pulpit. But when this uh, word is used here, it's about what everyday people are doing, telling other people you don't know about Jesus. So realize... You don't need a pulpit to preach. This is the pulpit, by the way. Um, I say that because um, I didn't know what a pulpit was until seminary. Um, and so I, I was actually, <laughs> I was being um, interviewed for like a scholarship at our at seminary. We, Amber and I went out to Denver, and we're looking at going to school there. And um, while I was in this interview process, you know, they were talking about the scholarship, and they're like, we really want it to go to uh, people who feel called to pulpit ministry. And I was like, excuse me, what's a pulpit? And <laughs> true story. And they were like, oh, it's like the thing you preach, like the stand, you know, the podium thing that you preach behind. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. Good. Okay. Um, so I, I say that because if you don't know what the word pulpit is, now you do and don't feel bad. It's okay. It's kind of a church word, you know, whatever. But the idea is you don't need a pulpit to preach. We're all sent out to share the good news of Jesus. They preached the word wherever they went. They were gospeling, if we use that as a verb, as they go at the, at the market where they ate meals with their neighbors, at the well or the local watering hole, on the job site, 
under the shade of a tree at the park. They were telling other people about Jesus and the difference he had made in their life. So I want you to realize I'm not trying to convince you. This is key. I'm not trying to convince you to carve out a little bit of time in your busy schedule to go and do evangelism. Hear me out. I'm not trying to convince you. Hey, just give me like a little sliver of your time. God just wants like a little bit of time you can throw on the calendar to go and share about Jesus. Because here's how most of us think about it. Think, man, I'm, I'm busy, right? I got kids, I got work, I got after school activities I got to get the kids to, or I got these commitments with my family, I got to take care of this or whatever. And we think, uh, where in the world am I going to fit in this call to preach and share Jesus with people? And so we look, so we can throw up a calendar like this. This is kind of how we visualize it. This is, I, I drew that, believe it or not. I drew that. Very gifted. Um, so, hey, I got work. I got, you know, I got to get the kids to practice or whatever. I got, uh, you know, dinner and bedtime routine. Then I got to rest or be at the house or, you know, do whatever is needed on the home front. Um, or, again, if you don't work outside the home, again, maybe yours looks a little different, but you get the idea. And so we say, hey, okay, pastor, I hear you. So if I want to be serious about Jesus, I got to fit in some time for mission and evangelism and, and talking about Jesus. And I guess I can just, like, carve out a few minutes here. I don't even know, like, do I take to the streets or no, knock on doors? Like, what is some events supposed to look like? I don't know. But, okay, I'll try and, like, fit in just a little bit of my spare time to do some evangelism. Anybody ever, kind of like, that's how we think it should work or it has to work. But I want you to see that, that this work God is calling us to is not about, like, adding something new to your calendar that you're not already doing. What if our calendar instead looked like this? This is how we viewed mission. As we say, hey, actually, all these things I'm already doing, God's already sent me here to my work and my job site, and I've already, hey, have this relationship with these coaches or on my kid's soccer team. I know the parents, or hey, in our neighborhood, we're sharing meals. Hey, at home, there, there's all these places I'm already going. What if I saw all of life as mission? Wherever the Lord would send me, I'm called to go and what? Share good news and show great love. Wherever he sent me. And so it's not about, hey, give me just like 10-minute sliver of your time. We'll put it on the calendar. It's, hey, look at everywhere you're already going. Where do you live, work, and play? And how can you leverage your presence there for the kingdom of God and sharing the good news of Jesus? Again, where you live with your neighbors, where you work with coworkers or clients, where you play? Do you have hobbies? Play pickleball or golf? Or are you a regular somewhere? Right? Some of you are regulars at coffee shops. They know your name. They know your order. They, some of you go to Panda Express and they're like, welcome, sir. We're glad you're here. We have your order ready for you. Like, where do you play? Live, work, play. <clears throat> Think about those areas. Saying, Lord, you've sent me there. Like, I'm there. How can I leverage this for you and your kingdom? And think about it. If it's just left up to ministry professionals to share about Jesus, or your hope is like, hey, i got to somehow get people in the doors of a church. First of all, um, a lot of people aren't even going to come to church, so rules that out. Um, and second, I'm not going to go out there and be able to interact with every single person in Benicia or in the Bay or whatever. But think about how if we all are scattered, think about all the different places God's placed us. All the companies that you all work for, all the neighborhoods that you all live in, all the hobbies you all have, all the places you shop, all the opportunities to love people and share good news and show great love. <clears throat> now, they're going and they're 
preaching the word about Jesus. They're proclaiming the Messiah. Some of us get nervous because we wonder, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't have all the answers. This sounds intimidating. What if someone asks a question I don't know how to respond to? Valid concerns. There will be things that come up and you might have to say, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. But in general, this isn't saying, hey, you have to be a seminary graduate or know all your fine theology and have it all worked out to be able to talk to others about Jesus. For some of us, it's as simple as, hey, I was blind and now I see. Or I was dead and then I met this Jesus and he totally changed my life. You can share your testimony. And included in that is just the basics of the good news. The basics of there's a God in heaven who created me and who I'm accountable to. And I know that I've sinned and fallen short of what he calls me to. And I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And Jesus came and he died on a cross for my sin, for the sins of whoever would trust in him. And now through faith in his name, he's given me eternal life and hope. And he's totally changed my heart. He's saved me. He's given me hope and a future and eternal life because of what he did on the cross. So you don't have to know everything about the Bible. So hopefully we're growing in understanding of who God is in Scripture, but the invitation is, hey, have we simply had a, a, a saving encounter with Jesus and we've trusted in him and now we can tell other people about the difference he's made in our life? I would challenge you and invite you, if you're still saying, hey, that's just scary, I don't know where to start, really for any of us, can I just encourage you to start this way? Just by being a person who asks good questions. If we could become people who are curious about others uh, and listen well, just ask, start ask be good questions. And rather than having the impulse to like talk or let me just tell you about me first, just be interested in other people. It's one of the simplest ways we can love people, actually, is just starting to listen to them and get to know them. But then as we ask good questions, conversations happen. And there's opportunities to share and talk about our lives as well. So start by asking some questions. You can even think through a few that you might use in your daily life. You could ask a coworker, have you ever been to church? What do you think about spiritual things? Do you have a faith background of any kind? Start there and just see what people say. There will be doors that open, no doubt. Now, notice it zooms in real quick, just lastly, on Philip going down to Samaria in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention. But with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So with the word of the gospel and great signs, the people of Samaria now hear about Jesus and they're responding. There's joy. People are healed. Uh, this is, we're going to be in Samaria for the next few weeks, so we're going to see more here. But realize basically what we know about the Samaritans. Right? If you've been around church, you, you know Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. Uh, Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as um, lowly, far from God. They had intermarried with Gentiles, so they weren't like pure Jews. They had different views on the Bible, different views on the temple, different views about worship. And so they were really culturally at odds with one another um, in a big way. And yet Stephen here, excuse me, Philip here, goes to the Samaritans and starts telling them about Jesus. And people are healed. And there's the joy of salvation in this region because of it. And I think the only observation I'll make that I think is helpful for us here is that 
the text just tells us he goes and he proclaims the Messiah. I think there's an indication there then that he's not leading with, here's all the ways Jews and Samaritans disagree on things. And hey guys, before I tell you about Jesus, we're going to sort all this out. And you guys worship at Mount Gerizim, and really you need to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And you guys only view, you know, the first five books of the Bible or whatever as authoritative, and you leave out these other books, and you should not do that. He doesn't clean up all their theology and then say, let me tell you about Jesus. It seems like he leads with Jesus in the gospel. Let me first tell you about Jesus. And we'll sort out the rest, and we'll have all those theological conversations that we need to have as we go. But the first thing I want you to hear, I want you to know about Jesus. And in our modern day, uh, we get that backwards. And we say, hey, the first issue I'm going to talk about with this person is their politics or their sexuality or their lifestyle choices or how they vote or whatever, rather than saying, hey, can we just talk about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus and the love of Jesus and the difference he can make in your life? Have you heard about the Savior? I think this is a really helpful invitation just to say, lead with Jesus. Would you please? Just, let's just lead with Jesus and trust that, again, God catches his fish first and then he cleans them. We use that a lot, right? For all of us, we're all going to, we encounter the love of Jesus, not because we're deserving or have all the right theology necessarily or have it all figured out, but we've heard enough to respond in faith to Jesus the Savior. And then God, in his grace and in his patience, he cleans us and refines us and shapes us and changes us. So would we lead with Jesus? I think it's noteworthy, too, that in Jerusalem, there's persecution. But in Samaria, there's a joyful response. The people who know the most and who you would think would respond to the Messiah, don't. The unexpected Samaritans are healed and respond with great joy. Again, maybe you're here this morning and you feel from God or don't know why you're here or just desperate in need of healing and help, the Lord would invite you to trust in him. Even if you feel like maybe one of the least likely people to trust in Jesus, and yet you're here, would you hear the invitation of Jesus to come and trust in him? He wants you to experience the joy of salvation today.